Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 249 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we got a fascinating conversation today with Kara Powell and Steve Argue from Fuller Youth Institute. They've got a brand new research project, really, on what it is like and what you need to do as a parent when your kids get a little bit older. Uh, you can grow with your kids through all the different stages. And I, I don't know about you, but I always thought like, okay, at 18, you're kind of done as a parent. Well, as a dad parenting kids in their 20s now, I promise you, you're not done. And they may be off the payroll, they may be all those things, but I'll tell you, they've got some incredible wisdom and insight. And if you're parenting young children, listen in, listen up, because you're going to learn a lot about how to position yourself well for those later years. And of course, if you're in student ministry, you work with kids, you're going to love this. And so Steve uh, is brand new to the podcast. Kara is back on the podcast, but that's my interview with them today. Another leader that I really highly respect and who has helped thousands of church leaders is Tony Morgan. And he is the founder and principal strategist, the lead strategist for the Unstuck Group. And Tony has done a lot of research. He's helped uh, thousands of churches sort of get through the fact that they're plateaued or declining. And I sat down with Tony and had a conversation with him about this assessment that they've been offering to churches for free for years. And I said, what is the data telling you? So he has a model where churches go through seven distinct life cycles from startup to really death. And I said, okay, so now you've heard from thousands of churches. What are you learning about where the average church leader gets stuck? Here's his answer. Yeah. So, Gary, you know, we measure seven stages in our life cycle and it's all the way from launch stage through life support. But interestingly enough, of those seven phases, the number one area where we see churches getting stuck is in the maintenance season. In fact, 60 percent of churches that have taken the unstuck church assessment have landed in the maintenance phase. Curious about where your church would land on that assessment? Well, you can take it for free. Head on over to theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. That's theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry. And you can take the free assessment, figure out which of the seven life stages your church is at. And the Unstuck Group just has helped thousands of churches get unstuck. So what they do is they help you assess your ministry health. They help you create strategic plans and even structure your staff toward the strategy and help you follow through. And the process helps you get unstuck and move towards success in reaching people that you so desperately want to reach. So once again, head on over to theunstuckgroup.com forward slash carry to see how the Unstuck Group can help your church get unstuck. And also, have you checked out Rethink Leadership yet? We are super excited to be doing what I think will be the best Rethink Leadership so far May 1st through 3rd in Atlanta, Georgia. We've just announced the final speaking lineup. So head on over to rethinkleadership.com and get in before it's too late. So we've got Horst Schultze. He's the founder of Ritz-Carlton, Nona Jones from Facebook, 
Kevin Jennings from Junction 32, a startup in Nashville that's doing incredible work in the social media world. Danielle Strickland, Darius Daniels, myself, John Acuff, Brad Lominick, and so many more. And we're talking leadership for two full days. We have a VIP reception Tuesday night. If you register now, you'll get in on that. So head on over to rethinkleadership.com before it's too late. Join me in Atlanta, May 1st through 3rd. We would love to host you and your team, your senior leadership team of senior pastor, executive pastor, campus pastor at this year's Rethink Leadership. Well, I am really excited for today's guest. Kara Powell is the executive director of the Fuller Youth Institute. Steve Argue is associate professor of youth, family, and culture. Kara has been called one of the 50 women to watch by Christianity Today. Uh, and what I always joke with these guys about is you do actual research. Like it's fascinating to see what they're learning about how you can grow with your kids as they get older and what that means for ministry. So without further ado, my conversation with Kara Powell and Steve Argue. Well, Kara and Steve, welcome back and welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you guys. Thanks, Carrie. It's great to be here. In beautiful, sunny Pasadena, California. Is that where we find you? Today it is a beautiful day, blue sky, nice and sunny, green trees. People in California last week, and I know this will air later, were freaking out because it rained for a week. I was getting texts from friends and they didn't know what oh, to yeah. do. I'm like, give me a break. We had a foot and a half of snow. Leave me alone. <laughs> many, many Californians realized they had holes in their roof when it rained that long because all of a sudden there were all sorts of roof leaks that had to be patched up. Uh, well, we're going to talk about your latest project. And I love, Kara, uh, I don't know how many times you've been on three times, I think. This is number four. Sure, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. But you do real research, like there's some PhDs in the house, and you guys are doing a great job at the Fuller Youth Institute of actually researching subjects and doing data points and figuring out what's going on in culture. So um, lots of parents listening, lots of young adults listening, some of whom don't have kids of their own, but they're like, how do I do parenting at this stage? Talk to leaders about the top pain points you think most parents and kids feel. Uh, and you can go right through, as you do with your research, into the young adult years. You know, I'm parenting a 27 and 23-year-old. So, uh, you know, speak right into that, that scene. What is showing up in early 21st century culture as the emerging pain points for um, kids and parents, regardless of the age? Yeah. You know, part of what I love about being at Fuller Seminary is we have a number of schools, including our School of Theology and our School of Psychology. And I love learning from my faculty colleagues at both of those schools. And what they have helped Steve and I understand is that really young people are searching for three things. Young people are driven by three quests. First, a quest for identity. They're wondering, who am I? Second, a quest for belonging. They're wondering, where do I fit? And third, they're driven for, by a quest for purpose. They're wondering, what difference do I make? So identity, belonging, purpose. That's what drives young people. Now, I think if we're honest, those are certainly the quests that drive each of us. I'm yeah. a few decades older uh, than the average 20-something. And, you know, those are what are driving me in many ways today also. Um, I think for young people, those questions are at a rolling boil. And for those of us post-30, those questions are often more simmering. Um, but one of the things that's fascinating to me as a parent myself 
is the way that parenting also triggers some of those identity belonging purpose questions. So, Hmm. you know, Carrie, you talked about your two sons who are in their 20s. Um, Dave and I, we have three kids who are currently 18, 16, and 12. And our 18-year-old is a 12th grader applying for college. And I was just telling a friend on a walk this morning, I think my son's process of applying to college is bringing out more of a temptation for me to compare myself with others than anything I've experienced in at least a decade. Um, And Nathan so far has heard from one college and it was a rejection. Um, And it was my alma mater. (laughs) So he was rejected from my alma mater. Um, And Nathan's doing totally fine with it. But I'm the one that had to wrestle with some identity and purpose questions. So, you know, let's just say that my spiritual direction appointment a few days after Nathan got that email had a lot of content for me to process (laughs) about my own, especially identity and purpose quest. So, you know, Steve and I think that's what all generations are searching for. Young people are searching for identity, belonging, purpose in capital bold letters. And as parents, our teenagers and our young adults and even our our elementary age kids, they often prompt or heighten those questions in us too. Hmm. That, that is really interesting. And you know what, I'm, I'm going back a few years to the college application process and resonating with what you're saying. And you know, there is a certain pride. Some of that is healthy. Some of that is not healthy in yep. where your kids land in life or their quote status in life or how they make you feel. And you're right. That is probably in not always the best way, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, a healthy thing. Steve, what would you add to that in terms of pain points for young adults or for parents and how that's manifesting itself? Yeah, I think Karen and I talk about this all the time as we are trying to engage our journeys as parents. I have three daughters who are 24, 22, and 19. So I'm a little bit ahead of uh, Kara, but Jen, my wife, and I um, are, are in the same journey trying to sort of think, think these things through. And I think what's interesting is we all sort of share in this is that we don't live our lives sort of in this independent, individualistic sort of way. There is this interdependence and this relationality that's associated. So we do feel the choices and the pains and the hopes of our kids in very, very real ways. And I think a lot of times, especially as parents, we often direct our attention toward our kids, trying to think about what they need and how we can help them, that we don't really critically reflect on maybe what's going on inside of us. And so I think there's something to pay attention to in our own thinking. I mean, it's interesting that when Kara told me about um, uh, you know, about a son not uh, making the college, one of the first questions I asked her was, how are you doing? And that wasn't because it was about Kara, but I think from one parent to another, we recognize that there is this primal level of realizing that it affects us in some ways. And that in many ways turns into reactive parent if we're not a par- uh, aware of it in that we will make decisions not recognizing that maybe it comes from our own fears and our own anxieties more than really out of helping uh, our kids, even though that's what we want for them. I think it's really thoughtful that you guys started there with maybe the not very articulated issues, but there's still issues. Like, I mean, you know, I don't think anybody's like, not, not in my house, (laughs) (laughs) right? Not in my life. What, what are some of the presenting pain points? Like in terms of like, you hear about social media, you hear about communication, you hear about, 
um, you know, online porn, all, all that stuff. So what would be some other things that are just like, boom, this is now part of the parenting child game, even though it's not a game? You know, there's some interesting trends when it comes to risk behaviors in teenagers and young adults. Um, there's something to celebrate in that many yeah. risk behaviors for today's young people are down. Um, in particular, partying, premarital sex, uh, engaging in um, alcohol and, and drug use. Those are all at least slightly down with today's young people. Wow. And, and we celebrate that. Um, what's heartbreaking is the risk behaviors that are up. And the risk behaviors that are up tend to be suicide, depression, anxiety. So, you know, one way to interpret that is that the risk behaviors, the pain points that young people experience in community with others are actually down. You know, you have sex with others, you party with others. The risk behaviors that young people tend to experience on their own uh, the stress, anxiety, suicidal tendencies, depression, um, those are up. And so, you know, yeah. we are getting more and more questions here at FYI about mental health. Um, I, I know it's a pressing issue for schools. The state of California just legislated that every middle school and high school student on the back of their school ID has the National Suicide Hotline uh, phone number so that every teenager oh. is carrying it around. Um, so that they know what to do. And it's interesting, when I share that with audiences, usually the audience erupts in applause um, because they, they, they sense that need in young people. So, you know, I would say mental health um, is a huge issue. And, you know, doing a lot of college tours with my son, every college campus is talking about that. I wish the church was talking more about that. And, I, and Steve and I wish families were talking more about that, having honest conversations about any um, overwhelming stress, depression, anxiety that young people or parents or grandparents are feeling these days. I, I want to I follow up, but Steve, what, what would you say about that? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, one, I think we uh, see that young people are growing up in a world um, that is increasingly unstable. I mean, we all grew up uh, in uh, in school uh, having fire drills. Uh, our kids have grown up uh, practicing lockdowns, right? So, you know, I just think there's some very, very interesting ways in which the world is shaping and forming and turning that raises a lot of anxiety, as Kara mentioned, for uh, for young people. And yeah, the anxiety and uh, depression is just through the roof. I would say the other thing is, um, as uh, as one author put it, we're, we're sort of in a scholastic arms race with parents that we are trying harder and harder to get our kids to get the education that they need to succeed in uh, in the world that uh, they are entering into, that we are literally running and trying to perform earlier and earlier in order to make it to the college that they think they need to get into, to get the job that they need to get into. And so, you know, we're asking teenagers what they want to be when they grow up and the path that they need to take in order uh, that they somehow will make it to wherever they're supposed to be at this magical uh, age when they're going to be an adult. And so kids feel this incredible uh, pressure. A lot of them don't even really know what they want because their lives have been scripted by parents who are deathly afraid that their kids won't succeed. And so that that pressure is uh, is legion. It's just multiplied in multiple ways. And um, I think that kids are really feeling that. Steve, that's so good uh, and so true, and it resonates at a deep level. I, I want to go back, Kara, to what you were saying about mental health and anxiety. 
how do you have that conversation with your kids? You know, middle school, teenage years, young adult years. How, how do you have that conversation? Yeah. Well, if you're a parent, how you have that conversation with your kid, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Well, the good thing about us parents is we get to see our kids more than anybody else. And I think most parents feel like they can tell when their kid is just a little bit not themselves. They have a sense if their kid isn't sleeping enough or maybe sleeping too much. Um, They can tell when their kid is, you know, overly wrought about something. And so, you know, one of the things that has shifted for me, elementary age versus adolescence, is when our kids were in elementary school, I could talk to them about pretty much anything at any time. Um, Now that they're in adolescence, I have to wait until their mood is right. And so, you know, sometimes I'll intend to talk, want to talk to my kid about something as I'm tucking them in and I can just tell, nope, not the right night, um, which is hard for me because I'm a list person. So I like the idea of kind of crossing <laughs> that off. Yeah. But, but you know, I, I think for a parent, if you're seeing any sign that your child is just acting a little bit abnormal, um, then look for the right moment. And, and you know, you so I sometimes bring it, Uh, based on what I've seen in the news. Gosh, I was reading today in the news or, you know, for your listeners, I was listening to a podcast today that was talking about how so many young people are feeling a lot of stress and, and then start maybe with school. What are you seeing at your school and see if they'll talk about other kids. So don't start with them. Don't be, the opening question isn't, are you suicidal? (laughs) (laughs) The opening question is, yeah. Yeah. What are you seeing at school? Gosh, how about your friends? So get a little bit closer and then, especially if the mood feels right, then ask about them and and maybe volunteer. You know, I've noticed that your eyes are just looking really tired. You seem a little bit more pale. And I don't think you're sleeping as much as you used to. How are you doing? Um, and see how they respond. But again, the mood's got to be right. And I would start by talking about teenagers in general, teenagers at their school, you know, 20-somethings, and then move it in concentric circles to talking about them. Steve, you're nodding a lot. Yeah, you know, I would just agree. I think that's great advice. I I think that there's what we know as parents, but I think as our kids get older, there's also uh, sort of the volitional piece, right? Like I think parents need to be curious and constantly not assume that we see in our kids or even their friends' behaviors and understanding what that means to kind of say, hey, I just noticed this or um, what do you think happened here? Or tell me about, you know, the weekend, or it seems like this topic came up. What do you think about that? Uh, but then I think the other piece is I think parents just need to be courageous and go there. Uh, mm-hmm. I think sometimes we're afraid as parents that if we raise the topic, that all of a sudden it'll be put in their heads and we don't want to go there, or we're afraid we're not going to have the right answer or response. And I think what happens is, is the more that we have taboo things that we talk about, the less we talk about them, and then it gets harder to talk about those things. And so, I, you know, I think sometimes we just have to step into that space and say, uh, our kids aren't going to say, hey, you know, dad, I want to talk to you about suicide. I, you know, I think it's going to be us taking those steps to open up those conversations. And so, you know, we say, uh, even in FYI, we say this often, like, your parents have to go first. We have to kind of take that step. Yeah. And step into those conversations courageously, knowing full well that it's a risk, but it's, I think it's a good risk. No, I think that's good. You know, I, I remember a few years ago having a conversation with one of my grown sons. And it was about a subject that we didn't see eye to eye on. 
And we kind of both, it was just one of those moments while we were at a coffee shop where I said, you know, here's the problem that usually develops at this stage. I don't know whether I said it or he said it. It's like, you either always talk about it every time you talk or you never talk about it. And those are the pulls you have to avoid. So it's not like every time you see them, it's like, how are you now? How are you now? Because that's going to freak them out. On the other hand, the, the verboten topic, the topic you never talk about, well, that's not healthy either. So it almost has to be normalized. And I like your idea about starting almost with a funnel. Hey, I was listening to a podcast, reading a book or talking to someone else. It's someone else's story. Saw this on the news. What are you seeing? And then how are you? Really, really good progression. Now, one of the things that also has changed in the last 10 years is um, everybody's got the internet in their hand. And so it used to be, and I've, 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 I've been really curious about this from a even sociological standpoint, you know, you used to get parenting advice from your mother and grandmother or, you know, your father or your grandfather because those are the people you knew or a neighbor or an uncle or a friend or something. But like our universe wasn't very big and you might have two parenting books on your shelf and now you have the internet and talking to young parents, they're like, yeah, we never asked our mom what she did with her baby because of course that was, you know, back in the eighties, it was the stone age. Nobody does that anymore. And I think, that, you know, maybe a bit of a characterization, but, but the truth is there, um, you know, kids have Google. And so are they still turning to adults for advice? Do they want to turn? Like, where are they going for answers to this? Are they going to peers? How's that happening? Yeah, so there are different pieces of research, and it also depends on what type of information they're looking for. But one of the things that I think generally we can say is that a lot of times they are doing exactly what you're saying, Carrie. They're going online and they're going to their friends. And, you know, while these can be useful resources, we know that the World Wide Web isn't exactly, you know, the bastion of perfect information, right? I mean, there's Mm -hmm. connection associated with that, but also isolation, there's misinformation. And uh, and so there's some challenges uh, with that. And then at the same time, you know, going to peers, I think they go to them for a lot of empathy uh, and understanding, which is great. But I think we also recognize the fact that Peers talking to peers don't have the, the, the privilege of having more light, lived life, right? They can't really peek around the corner as to what's next or that type of thing. So, um, you know, I say this with deep respect. It's sometimes the blind leading the blind, right? Because they're both <laughs> trying to figure things out and it doesn't necessarily work that way. Now, um, what I'd say about this is I don't think this is out of protest to two adults. I, I think that part of growing up Uh, for young people is sometimes situated in this idea that, well, I'm supposed to figure it out myself because that's what adults do. I've been uh, interacting with my daughters about this and my, I I recently had a conversation with my daughter, Kara, about this. Not named after me, just to clarify. (laughs) So we have the same name, spelled the same way, but he named Kara, he and Jen named Kara a long time before we even met. Exactly. But it's a good name. Yeah, it is a good name. We love it. Um, You know, she tried something and kind of didn't ask us for help. And, you know, that's fine. She can do what she wants to do. And that's part of her process. But I did ask her, I'm like, why didn't you, like, I think we could have helped you with that. We could have probably given you some some insights in that. And she's like, well, you know, I'm trying to become an adult. I'm trying to figure this out uh, myself. And so, you know, I think that what young people are sometimes wrestling with is how do I be independent, but then how does that move to interdependence where, you know, asking for advice isn't mean that you're less of an adult. In some ways, it can actually be uh, helpful. So I think they're trying to find their way and trying to be adult-like, but that doesn't always work. And then at the same time, I think we have to just be honest as 
uh, as leaders uh, in companies, as parents, as ministry leaders, um, and maybe ask the question, well, why don't young people reach out to us? You know, mm-hmm. sometimes adults are just too busy and stressed out themselves, right? <laughs> um, uh, and so the stress in our own lives leaves little room for real conversation or advice giving or listening associated with that. And as Kara mentioned before, I think we're seeking out our own questions and questing our own questions of identity and belonging and purpose. And so, you know, I think that young people with regards to the internet have internet have access to a lot of information, but what I think they really need access to is, is wisdom. What are, what are, what do parents do that shuts down the dialogue? What, what are some things that parents would typically do that just like your kid's never going to talk to you when you do that? <laughs> well, we, we talk a lot about that. I think sometimes parents and adults uh, in trying to relate to young people will say, you know, when I was your age, and then they go into some sort of um, montage about uh, their age and everything associated with that. And I think that as adults, sometimes we think those are bridge builders, but for young people, it's a bit of a barrier. Um, because okay. a young person will will say, well, uh, you know, and the operative word there is when, right? Well, when you were my age, it was like the 80s, right? Or the 90s. Mm-hmm. Think about what you wore back then. I mean, things have have changed. The internet wasn't even around. I mean, the, uh, the, the news cycle was completely different. And so there's a distancing effect that sometimes comes with, with that. Because I think that sometimes adults think that because they were teenagers or 20-somethings once, once they understand teenagers and 20-somethings today. And we just need to realize that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, it's crucial for us to recognize that w- when we are teenagers and when we are in our 20s actually has a dramatic effect on the experiences that we have, the pressures we feel, and that type of thing. Now, that doesn't mean we can't talk to each other, but I think in some ways it's recognizing the difference before we step into saying that we can completely understand where they're coming from. And that difference then allows us to maybe, again, take a curious approach uh, and to ask them, well, tell me what it's like for you. Um, How are you wrestling with that? Um, What's it like for you to work through that uh, in your life? It might be different than mine. And then that way, I think it allows us to truly understand uh, where young people are coming from rather than assuming. You know, if I can answer that question autobiographically, um, one of my current goals for myself as a parent that is born from where I think I'm weak and where I blow it is I want to be more a more empathetic parent. Um, just last week, Dave and I were trying to have a conversation that we knew was going to be kind of tough with our 16-year-old Uh, And we started the conversation and it went south quickly. Um, Mm. And so we said, well, you know what, why don't you go to your room and let's try again in 10 minutes. And so she came out of her room in 10 minutes and it went south even more quickly. And there were (laughs) tears and it was just terrible. And I'm getting frustrated and um, and, and Dave was getting frustrated. And so we just agreed to, to end the conversation at that point. And so Krista went into her room and I actually, I, I pulled out my laptop because when I don't know what to do, I feel better when I work. And so yeah. I pulled out, not, that's not a healthy thing. That's a subject for another podcast, Carrie, but that's Un- understood. Yeah. It's kind of my coping mechanism. So I pulled out my laptop and I was actually looking at some um, summaries of this book, Growing With, that Steve and I have written. And it was talking about the importance of empathy. And 
I all of a sudden realized that's what I was blowing with Krista. Like the marketing materials for our book convicted me of how I had blown it with my own 16 year old. So I shut my laptop. I went into a room and I said, you know what? I'm so sorry, Krista. I was not empathizing with you. I wasn't, I mean, what I thought to myself, I didn't say to her is the topic of this conversation um, pokes at some of her insecurities and anxieties. And I wasn't sensitive to that. I was viewing it as a neutral topic and it was not a neutral topic for her. And, you know, we believe that you can't journey with someone if you're judging them. And I was, I ended up judging Krista instead of journeying with her. And so I apologize. She forgave me. We agreed to have the conversation. And a, a few days later, and a few days later, she, Dave, and I were finally, you know, third time to the charm, able to have the conversation. But it was all because I wasn't empathizing putting myself in her shoes, understanding her beliefs that were influencing her behavior. So, so that is the mistake that I'm aware of that I make regularly as a parent that I'm trying to work on. So uh, that's good to, that's, thanks for being so honest. Yeah. It's fun when your own marketing materials like convict you, it's even better. <laughs> uh, my kids have done this where they quote me to me. Yeah, like, right. uh, oh gosh. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Next, next. Um, So you do have this new book. Really, it's a research project that in part is expressed through a book that you've titled Growing With. Yeah. And I don't know. It's interesting. We talk about, we live in a culture that talks about delayed adolescence, failure to launch, uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, is 30 the new 20. And you've got thoughts on that inside the book. But are you sort of attacking the idea that at some point you're done parenting? Is that, is that part of this research project? Yes. In a word, yes, we are. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking recently about a friend of my mom's who was in her 60s and took her 80-year-old dad to the beach. And so the 60-year-old went out into the water, you know, was maybe up to her shoulders and left her 80-year-old dad on the sand sitting on a towel. And all of a sudden, the 60-year-old turned back to look at the beach and make sure her dad was okay. And her dad was gesturing wildly, like, come back in, come back in, come back in. And so she thought, oh, my goodness, he's having a health issue. And so, you know, as quickly as she could, she got out of the water, you know, ran up on the sand, got to her dad, was panting and said, you know, are you okay? Are you okay? And he said, the 80-year-old said to the 60-year-old, yeah, I just thought you were out a little bit far, so I wanted you to come. <laughs> in. And, and you know, it, if you're a parent, I think you get it. Um, once you become a parent, you're a parent for the rest of your life. And so the question isn't whether or not we're parenting, it's what kind of parenting we're doing and what kind of parenting is best for our kids. As well as, I mean, I feel like parenting is one of um, God's best curricula for me to grow. I mean, parenting is constantly teaching me new things about myself, my sins, as well as my strengths. Um, and so, you know, what Steve and I want is as, as parents grow with their kids, it's not just get good for our, our children, our teenagers, and our young adults. It's good for us, too, because we, as parents, we maintain a posture of growth and development that changes us also. Yeah, Steve. Any uh, any thoughts on on parenting and the whole journey with that? Yeah, I I think we have to remember that the parenting journey is not static; it's dynamic; it's constantly changing. And you know, we know this, I think, through experience. But I think somewhere along the way, we kind of get rigid 
Um, we lose the sense of the fact that our kids are changing. Uh, and I think that they're looking for different types of parents as they grow. We need to keep growing as well. And so, you know, that's, that's the vigilance that comes uh, with parenting that is sometimes hard because we're tired and we're stressed, but uh, it's really what, uh, what makes all the difference, we think. Well, and it's natural that what worked with our kid last year or last month, we think we can keep doing, but yeah. our kids are growing and changing. And so we need to. So yeah, yeah, parenting just keeps us on our toes because our kids aren't static. Our kids aren't static. So parenting can't be static. Yeah, that's a great point. Right. You know, sometimes we think that we only change the things that we've done wrong, but I think we have to actually change the things that we do right. Hmm. Well, you got a fascinating chapter at the beginning of section called Growing Up Today. And you talk about, we've touched on it a little bit, but how different the world is for kids. And you make some interesting claims like why 14 is the new 24, why 28 is the new 18, um, and then wasn't there, yeah, why 30 can't be the new 20. Can, can, you, can you walk us through some of those ideas? Uh, because we're getting older and younger at the same time. It's weird. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is weird. And it, I think it's sort of the world that we live in. I mean, to, today we just look at the young person experience and we recognize the fact that life is moving faster uh, for them. There's actually this acceleration that's happening of what's expected and what they need to accomplish and what they need to get done. And so this is having an effect, I think, on their identity and belonging and purpose. There's There's also less institutional support. As much as there is support for them. We're finding that sometimes these institutions aren't necessarily thinking about the particular needs of our kids or of young people. Uh, and so this is creating a problem where they feel like there's not really much of a safety net below the risks that they're taking. There's also greater racial and ethnic diversity um, that factors into the way they think about the world, uh, who their neighbors are, who their friends are, and how they think about that. Uh, we mentioned it before that young people are reporting more anxiety and depression, which is factoring in not only to their own lives, but their friends as well. Um, families are working harder to make it. This isn't just about young people. This is really about family systems that are having to work harder and harder to put food on the table, uh, to make it um, in our economy. Uh, and uh, education is also the gateway to a better life, but we're also seeing that it's more expensive. We've actually changed our language at FYI, where we don't say a junior is in their third year because that may not be the case. We know that the typical four-year college experience is rare uh, as it's taking longer, as young people are having to work extra jobs to pay for tuition. Uh, and at the same time, they know that they need this in order to uh, make it in our world. And so they also have more opportunities. I mean, this isn't all bad, but with these opportunities, uh, it can be inspiring for them. And at the same time, it can be a bit terrifying for them because now they have more options that they have to navigate. And they're being asked over and over again, what do you want to be with when you grow up? What are you going to do after college? What are you going to do uh, with your future? And so I think as they're marinating in this environment and pressure and anxiety, uh, one study said that you know 13 to 7 year old, 17 year olds are more likely to report feeling extreme stress than adults. So um, they're experiencing mm. this for the first time, and it's new and uh, and it's pretty challenging for them. And so you know, in in our book, going with, we just talked about how it's important for us to remember that for teenagers uh, in our families and communities. 14 starts to feel like the new 24. The, the responsibilities and the pressures that maybe we had when we were 24, they're feeling at a younger and younger age. Yeah, and what's interesting is, is building on that, 
there's this there's this gas pedal that Steve described, but then there's simultaneously this brake pedal. I mean, it's fascinating the trends that are happening with adults, young adults these days, 20-somethings. I mean, data is showing, census data is showing that young people are getting married five years later, having babies five years later, finishing school five-ish years later, becoming independent later, financially independent later. And so the markers that have traditionally marked adulthood are being crossed about five five or more years later. And so that's where we say that 14 is the new 24, but also 28 is like 18 for a lot of young people. So, which is challenging for parents. It's challenging for churches, you know, because churches have tended to be set, set up for children's ministry, student ministry, college ministry, and then young marrieds ministry. But now there's this gap between college and married or not so young marrieds um, that churches aren't really being agile and responding to well enough yet. And so that's part of what Steve and I hope comes from this book also. So this idea, I guess, if I want to summarize it, see if I got it accurately, is that you're exposed to a lot of information. You mentioned technology in the book. So that kind of grows you up fast. I mean, online exposure to porn, puberty comes a lot earlier. You can find out anything you want, even things you shouldn't know at a much younger age. And that seems to be happening. So all of a sudden, I think there's a line in the book that talks about you're clutching your teddy bear and the next thing you know, you know, you're thrust into the world. So that's going faster. And yet the markers, whatever those five markers are into adulthood, I think it's graduated college, like own a home, you know, married kids. And there's one other, uh, whatever that is, but uh, you know, that you've got those markers that's happening later and later. So there's this gap. There's like this multi-decade gap that you guys are, have done some really you know, good and helpful research on. So, yeah. And if you've ever driven with one foot on the gas pedal, one foot on the brake pedal, it's a herky jerky ride. Um, And that's what a lot of young people are experiencing, which causes parents to experience that also. And so sometimes what young people hear is that, well, 30 is the new 20. Like somehow you've got more time to sort of figure this out. And I think there's two sides of this that we address in the book. And I think we're really thinking through uh, in ministry context and also just um, just family context as well. And that is, is that I think there needs to be some grace toward young people recognizing the fact that in order to be a contributing member, adult in society, it just takes longer to prepare because of the education and uh, the, some of the skills that are needed for um, our techno, uh, technological, our technological world, and at the same time, uh, we don't want to communicate the message that the twenties are kind of like the teens that you can kind of just meander your way through this crucial decade in life. In fact, some researchers would say, you know, this third decade of life is really a, a decade of investment, where we're asking some really hard questions about who are the people that I want to spend time with? What, what do good friendships look like? What does it mean for me to take steps toward the vocation that I feel called to? As I think about um, maybe settling down someday, what, in romantic relationships, what is a good and healthy relationship? What does family mean to me? So, you know, I think as adults and as parents and as leaders, one of the things that we have to do, and I think we can support uh, those in their 20s, is actually kind of help them think about this decade as a decade of investment rather than just another decade where I can kind of try a bunch of things and hopefully land on, in the place where I want to be where I'm 30. Because we have a lot of 30-year-olds that are looking back on their 20s lamenting 
that they weren't further along than they'd hoped to be. And so, you know, I think that- Is that why 30 can't be the new 20? Because- uh, Yeah. 30 can't be the new 20 exactly for that reason, because we want the, we want when someone gets to 30, we would hope that they would be at a place where they're really moving forward in the trajectory of their lives. And that's not just something that we want. I mean, we see in emerging adult literature uh, that most emerging adults want this as well. They want to be on their way by 30. In their minds, 30 is a bit of a magic uh, number for them, for whatever reason that is. Hmm. No, that's super helpful. Yeah. And, you know, it was the first time your research and your writing on it really made me think, yeah, there is that like early onset of adulthood and then the delayed entry into adulthood, which is a really helpful way of framing it and almost creates this two decade span of time where you're sort of neither and both, right? Yeah. Which is really, really interesting. And I love the way you've said that. I mean, I, I think that when we think of it as two decades, we realize that that's a huge amount of investment in oh my time. Gosh, I it's think the difference between 20 and 40, 40 and 60. Like there's a lot of life exactly. in there. Exactly. And I think that past thinking, especially with like youth ministry or that type of thing, we've already sort of thought of adolescence as sort of this transition period. Two decades is not a transition period. Two decades needs investment and attention. Well, theoretically, that's a quarter of your life. Yeah. Right? If you want to look at it that way. That's, yeah, right. It's really, really... No, it's got my, the gears are turning. Okay, let me go. One of the top adjectives used to describe teenagers, young adults is entitled. Uh, do you agree with that? No. Okay. No, <laughs> no. Oh, two no's, two no's. Yeah, two out of two dentists surveyed said no. So what? Yeah. what's the story behind that? Yeah, I think we just sort of wince when we hear young people characterize that way because I think entitled sounds like they're just sort of taking uh, longer to make the markers of adulthood and it's their choice, like somehow they're just sort of pushing it off. And I think what we're realizing is that we just have to remember that every older generation has to admit that the younger generation inherits the world that's given to them. So it's not just their choice. It actually is the world and the environment that they're navigating. And so today's teenagers and young adults, I think, uh, are sort of misunderstood for their attitudes and actions um, because uh, the world is different and it's more uh, challenging than ever before. But I think when we look deeper at what's going on here, you're going to see that these attitudes and actions have some logical um, steps associated with them because young people are trying to navigate this. So take, for example, um, you know, we're always here sometimes that young people, they're entitled, they just move from job to job and they're, you know, they're not really uh, committed to anything. And I think we just need to look at the the current landscape and say, you know, current teenagers and uh, young adults uh, are not as loyal to companies because they see generations that have gone before them that parents have been laid off or the pension has dried up or there isn't one anymore. Um, In addition, you know, I think that the promise of a well-paying job after college isn't there anymore. As a matter of fact, the new first job is the unpaid internship. So think about what that does to the psyche of, of a young person. And so they're forced to use multiple jobs and have side hustles to pay rent and sort of make it. And so um, the flightiness that sometimes is perceived by um, adults is actually young people trying to hustle in a world uh, that really gives them no guarantees. As a matter of fact, some um, older leaders always talk about, well, you need to have this work-life balance, right? But if you're a contract employee that does graphic design or you work for a company, you're expected to deliver on a deadline 
and there is not an eight to five anymore. There, there is no break between work and life. There is uh, you being on call 24-7, getting things done, or you don't get paid. So the work-life balance, that's not even on the radar of an emerging generation because they're just trying to make it. So, you know, I think if we want to be self-reflective, maybe in like church context, perhaps it would be interesting to consider how we actually contribute to the problem or how we can help it. You know, churches are experts at the unpaid internship, right? Because we're working for We are for so God. good at that. We are great right. at that. Yeah. You we know, we're offering, offering just enough part-time where you would get more hours out them, but we don't have to pay insurance. Or we expect expert resumes, but we want entry-level uh, wages. And so, you know, perhaps <laughs> the good news here is that we can reconsider how we create a culture that invests for the long haul and in each other. You know, and as leaders, especially in the ministry world, what if we were to develop pastors rather than produce free agents? I would love that. What do you mean by that? Well, I just think that if we use them, they're going to use us. Nobody makes commitments to each other and we look for the next best thing. But if I say to you, I'm committed to you, are you willing to be committed to me? Let's stick this out for the long haul. Let's see what we can build together. Um, I, I think that's a different way of going about employment and the ways that we think about relationships with one another. Oh, wow. So we have a lot of church leaders listening, and you identify, you call them millennials and then iGen. So is that a, a different term for Gen Z, what others call Gen Z? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm glad you raised this, and I think it's important for us, um, and we always think about this, is how we sort of define our terms, right? So yeah. this term millennial is often uh, spoken uh, by certain adult circles with an eye roll. Um, they're usually uh, blaming uh, millennials for wrecking office culture, the housing market, the avocado supply, um, <laughs> you know, uh, all, all, all of funny. the above. But I think if we listen closer, we recognize that when most people say millennial, um, they're basically saying young people. So anybody that's younger than me, uh, and probably in, uh, probably in some uh, maybe some darker sort of ways, um, it's it's uh, millennial means other right? Um, mm. It's sort of a way of labeling a whole group of people. Um, and so I think we've been more sensitive to that. I mean, sociologically, we recognize that millennials were really born between 18, uh, 1980 and, and 2000. So right now they're ages 19 to 39. So 39, mm. I mean, that that's pushing you're 40. You're not a kid. No, you're no, not a kid no. uh, anymore. And there's a cohort that's coming behind uh, millennial that uh, some call Gen Z, others, Gene uh, uh, Twenge calls them um, iGen. Um, and uh, they're born about 1995 to 2000. It depends who you talk with. And so this cohort is really either entering college or they're entering the workforce right now. And, and some mm. would argue that this is truly the first generation that's had the connectivity of the internet and especially of the smartphone that's created um, some interesting dynamics about the way one accesses information, the way one relates, uh, the way one goes about everyday activities, et cetera, et cetera. And so I I think it's important for us to remember again, uh, when a young person grows up has an effect on their cohort. I think that we have to be careful with uh, these terms, though, that we don't use them to generalize or overlabel. They just give us some yeah. context. And so in a lot of our thinking, we prefer to think about uh, developmental uh, terminology. So we think of teenagers as, you know, we're all familiar with that. That's, you know, 18 or 13 to 18 years old. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, and then, uh, you know, really the term that uh, is used in a lot of academic circles, um, you know, is this idea of emerging adulthood, emerging adults. They're really 18 to 29 years old. An emerging adult doesn't feel like an adolescent anymore. They're obviously um, much older than teenagers, but they don't necessarily feel like uh, adults yet. And so, you know, as you mentioned, this two decade or this developmental space um, are just loaded with more opportunities and more choices and more stress than ever. And, you know, I think that young people's emerging lives and experiences uh, need leaders and adults and parents to embrace uh, this ever-changing dynamic that they're a part of to give them more specific support rather than just generalizing them as millennials or young people or, or that type yeah. of thing. So in the book, just to defining terms, but yeah. I, I think it's very helpful. Most people divide two categories, teenagers, young adults, but you have three. Do you want to just go through those real quick? And then I want to talk to you about why we're not reaching any of these categories. Okay, the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so most people, uh, both practitioners as well as academics, will think in terms of teenagers and young adults or emerging adults. But as Steve and I have done research, reviewed research, and spent a whole bunch of time with teenagers and young adults, we felt like that's not nuanced enough. And instead of two stages, we suggest in the Growing With book that there are really three stages. Um, the first stage is the learner stage, and that's uh, ages 13 to 18, typically, say, a high school-ish student. And, you know, a young person in that stage is experiencing rapid physical, emotional, relational, intellectual, spiritual growth that brings all sorts of new questions, interests, um, friendships to that young person, a super exciting stage. But often right around age 18, that young person transitions into what we call an explorer that's the second stage, the explorer stage. And that's for 18 to roughly 23-year-olds. And please hold these age ranges with a, a grain of salt. Every young mm -hmm. person's a little bit different. You know, a young person age 18 to 23 is often venturing away from home for the first time or away from home-oriented routines. They're pursuing new goals, relationships, beliefs. Um, they're in school, training, the military, the workforce. They're excited about the future, but really unsure about themselves. Yet it's the season of exploration. And then the third stage for 20-somethings ages 23 to 28 is what we call focusers. Uh, a focuser is, is a young person who's gaining a clear sense of who they are. They've made educational, vocational relational and spiritual choices that open up new opportunities and close others. Um, and some focusers are really excited where they're at, maybe even feel ahead. Others are struggling because they maybe feel a little bit behind. But as Steve and I have spent time with young people, we really think there's learners ages 18, excuse me, ages 13 to 18, explorers ages 18 to 23, and then focusers ages 18 to 23. And each one needs a different style of parenting and a different type of response from the church. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And that resonates as a dad, you know, piloting or not piloting anymore, but, but, you know, growing with my kids that, yeah. that totally resonates with those phases. So let's talk about churches because, you know, even in the larger age gap that we talked about, you know, roughly when kids become independent, 18 ish, where, they kind of make up their own mind about whether they're going to church or not when they head off yeah. to college or into the marketplace. Yeah. Right through to pretty much 40, the top of the millennial generation, bottom part of, of Gen X. Um, 
there's just a hole with churches. So yeah. in, in many, many cases, not all, but many, why is that huge cohort disappearing from church? <laughs> I know that's a whole other podcast, a whole other book. But See our but book, you, you, Growing you, you, Young. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or, or, or look at it this way. Why are millennials in that generation that follows them raising new challenges for the church? How is that challenging uh, yeah. church leaders? Yeah, so maybe we can come at this in, in, a, in a couple of different directions. One is, um, I, I believe, and I think that Karen, I believe, and FYI believes that um, there, there are multiple narratives associated with young people and, and their faith journeys. Uh, oftentimes what we hear are the negative narratives of young people leaving the church, young people not caring about faith. Um, there's a lot more nuns and duns, et cetera, et cetera. And that is a narrative that we need to pay attention to. Uh, but there is another narrative. And the other narrative is that young people are discovering faith. They're uh, discovering God in some uh, unique and um, original ways. Uh, and sometimes I wonder if uh, the church is blind to the positive narrative because they're only holding on to the metrics that they want for um, basically measuring faithfulness. And a lot of times that defaults mm. to attendance. They're not showing up in my church where I can count them. Therefore, they are not caring about church and they need to somehow come back, right? That, that's a narrative. I, I don't think it's the best one, but um, I, I do think it's there. I just think we need to realize that um, that narrative can't eclipse this other narrative that there are some exciting oh, things that are happening. So, you know, I, I think that's one thing. And then the other thing is this, is that I do think because of the changing experience of young people, especially emerging adults, this 18 to 29 um, and maybe even um, uh, older experience is, is that churches, as Kara mentioned earlier in the podcast, have sort of fallen into this structural design where we are hind and quartered by age and marital status. So once we do that, um, we have uh, a problem because we have a group, this cohort of especially those in their 20s uh, that are single, that want to be single, that are looking for, uh, for friendship. They want to be invested uh, in the community, but because they don't fit um, the way a program is set up, they don't know where they fit. And, you know, one of the ways that uh, I, I like to share with leaders about this is, um, is kind of through a metaphor. It's, uh, it's, it's this idea of the DTR or defining the relationship. You know, uh, maybe uh, you've had this or one of our listeners have had this. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now and you're, I'm making you anxious as I say the DTR. Um, but it's really when you have this relationship with someone and it's progressing and it's getting deeper. And you get to that point where you have to say, okay, who are we together? What can I expect of you? And what can you expect of me? And if we can define that, there's a, a place to go. We, we either move forward or we decide not to, but at least it's defined. If we don't have the define the relationship moment, what happens is, is that we live in ambiguity and the relationship ultimately falls apart. And I think what's been misunderstood uh, about young people, uh, quote unquote, leaving the church, is that they're leaving the church out of protest. And we would argue that it's more likely that they're leaving the church out of ambiguity because they don't know what the relationship they have is with their churches. And so hmm. if we actually maybe think about that and say, hey, church, what can we expect of you? Or the church says, here's what we see in you. I think that if that relationship is defined, we can move in a, in a better direction. And let me say one more thing. I also think there's a problem 
for the way that we engage uh, young people. When I was uh, a pastor uh, at a church, uh, part of my responsibility was to think about sort of this college age group. Uh, and they were so excited because they're like, oh, finally, we're going to have a college age ministry. Well, as I talked with students and as I thought about it, uh, I just said, no, we're, we're not going to have that form of programming. And you would have thought that I had basically torn the heart out of anybody's hopes and aspirations that we would ever save a younger generation. But, but here's the deal. Um, I knew that as soon as I created that program, that I was, would be doing what, uh, what these young people and actually what the leadership wanted, and that was replicating youth group again. Now, if we're going to define the relationship, I don't want those in their 20s to think that the way you relate to the church is the way that you did in high school. Yeah. I want you to relate to the church as a growing 20-something that's moving toward adulthood. So what does programming look like for that? Maybe it's not programming at all. As a matter of fact, the older uh, that we get, we hope that we're um, not making them dependent on programs, but they're actually finding agency. They're actually making their own groups. They're pursuing God in their unique ways, and that we are actually resourcing um, young people in their direction rather than making them dependent on our organizations again. So I think there's just some challenges that we need to think about in our own assumptions about what we're trying to do with young people and how we're measuring success in that area. Okay. So I'd love for you guys, as we sort of wrap up, just to, because you talk a lot about parenting and the whole thing in the book, but uh, from two perspectives. Number one, if you're in that explorer stage or the focus stage or millennials, you know, they're moving into this new reality. What are some tips for them in navigating that? And then flip it and talk also about, okay, we're parenting kids in these stages, you know, from the teens into early adulthood, uh, because we have just about everybody listening. We got a lot of explorers and focusers listening and millennials listening. And then we got some of their parents listening too. So I'd be interesting as we close this for you to talk about some do's and don'ts uh, from the younger adult perspective and then from the parents' perspective. Yeah, I guess what I would say to emerging adults is a couple of things. First of all, um, what we hear time and time again from you is that you constantly feel like you're behind. Uh, that you wish you were further along than you were. And there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with that. And I think that maybe what you need to hear first and foremost is um, you don't have to feel that way. Um, that part of your journey does take longer. I know people place expectations on you, but I think um, you are where you are and you can always take a next faithful step. And we would encourage you to continue to think about how you use this decade to invest in who you want to become. Um, and if you have faith, who God wants you to become. And we think that there's room uh, for that. Uh, I think if you do have faith, I think I've talked with a lot of, of uh, emerging adults who feel that somehow that if they question their faith, if they uh, uh, have different views as to uh, what it means for them to walk or follow God, uh, that somehow that they are pariah, uh, that somehow um, they're they, uh, they, they unfaithful. Uh, and what we would say is, um, 
that's part of uh, of your journey that that faith actually has this verb quality to it where we don't just have faith but we faith we call that faithing um and when we think of it that way then uh then faith is not something that we possess it's actually something um that we process and is growing trying to in many ways follow Jesus uh, into the complexities of our world which we believe the gospel can handle and so if you feel like um, you've got questions or you feel stuck, recognize that that is not an act of unfaithfulness. It actually quite could be an act of faithfulness because you're on the verge of discovering something new, something that you have to pay attention to and something um, that maybe God is trying uh, to show you. And, um, you know, I would just say that you are probably going to be misunderstood sometimes, but just recognize the fact that there's a lot of us that are cheering for you, recognizing that those are the important steps um, that uh, you're taking. So maybe those are just a couple of things I'll start with that I want to encourage you with. I don't know that that's age specific. That's great. That's just great advice. <laughs> yeah, I, but I know. It's, it's I kind of have a lump in my. I kind of have a lump in my throat. So yeah, I do too. It, that's uh, that's. If that's I could incredible. just add add one yeah. um, one aspect that I certainly see is important for young adults, emerging adults, is so many of them are wrestling with questions about their vocation and you know their their long term employment is kind of this intersection of the identity, belonging, and purpose angst that we talked about at the start of this podcast. And one of the things that we we see so often in young people is how the church can be a great place to ignite a vocational spark. That young people who aren't sure about their future path, they volunteer in the church in a particular role and they realize, oh, I love teaching or I love the business side of operating a coffee house or I love working in tech at the church. And all of a sudden, as they explore their gifts and their passions through the local church or a local philanthropy nonprofit, they start to take important steps down God's long-term path for them. So, you know, what Steve and I would say, and we say in our Growing With book, is the church is a perfect lab for young people to experiment with their vocational calling. So if you're stuck vocationally, think about a church or a ministry or a nonprofit that you can volunteer in and, and build some vocational muscles and see what that might lead to. Uh, any final word for parents? Yeah. And, and really, we, we wrote Growing With more for parents than any other group. So it's appropriate that that's the final, final word. You know, with, with the three stages, learners, explorers, and focusers, each stage requires a different kind of parenting. And so, you know, the type of parenting that's important for a learner is a parent who's a teacher. Uh, a teacher parent is somebody who's really pretty hands-on with their kids, um, helping their kid be self-motivated, training them in the right practices and disciplines to help them succeed, but is, is staying pretty close to their kid. Um, but then as your parent transitions into that guide stage, somewhere around age 18 or so, guide parents give their new young adults more room 
Um, and just like a good guy does, if they're touring a mountain or touring a neighborhood with folks, they try to have a sense. When do I need to step in and give more direction? And when can I step back? Because, you know, my young person's got this. When's the terrain rocky and I need to get more involved? And when can I step back? And so, you know, I think in some ways the guide, the guide stage when your kid is 18 to 23 arguably requires the most savvy and the most intuition to know how involved to be because you're kind of in this in-between stage. The good news is, though, research indicates that for a lot of families, that parent-child relationship improves in this stage. So for your listeners who are having a rocky adolescence um, right now, having a rocky time with their adolescent, there's hope that when their child moves into that explorer phase, the relationship can get better. And then lastly, for that, that young person who's a focuser, what Steve and I believe is that a parent who grows with is a resourcer, a resourcer who's ready to give their child the resources. I don't, I don't necessarily mean financial. That's not at all no, what no. we mean. But, but the advice and counsel that their child needs generally when their child seeks it. Um, and points them to other resources that can be valuable for their kid. And this this stage requires a lot of um, accepting your child's choices, even if they're not what you would wish for your child. One of the parents that we interviewed, we interviewed many, many, many parents for this research. And one of the parents we interviewed said uh, of a child in this stage said, sometimes she feels like a bobblehead parent, that when her child is telling her something, that feels a little outrageous. She knows she probably shouldn't object, so she just kind of nods along like a bobblehead would. And and she said, you know, that buys her time to think, and it buys time for the child to experience the consequences of their choice. It leads to a better conversation later. Um, and that, that parent has learned, I shouldn't react. I should just listen and try to understand my child's perspective instead of stepping in. And that's what a lot of resource parents do, is they listen, try to understand perspective and when the child seeks advice offer it so those are what we think are the three stages of parents first teaching then being a guide and then lastly as you grow with you're a resourcer i love it i think some of the biggest conflicts happen when we get our signals crossed when when our learner kids need a teacher parent but we're something else right so this is where if we can pay attention to where our kids are at i think that we can support them in the best way. And, you know, the other thing I, I, I would add uh, to this, and I know that Kara would agree with this as well, is um, parenting can feel really lonely sometimes. Um, you feel like you're the only one or that you're only going through this or that your kid is the only one that's crazy. And, you know, I, I think that part of the thing that we need to do as parents, especially as our kids get older and we don't have the, the natural connections of... Um, you know, a game at high school, right? Because now they're beyond high school or whatever, is really being intentional about um, our relationships. And maybe um, maybe from one dad to all the dads out there, dads, we have to do a better job of connecting with each other. I think, I think the females, the mothers in this world are leading the way on that. We have a lot to learn. And um, I would just say, I think dads can sometimes, we can be some of the loneliest people uh, in the world. And so I think having someone else that we can process with and really think about what does it mean for us to be uh, fathers of our growing kids is, is, is crucial because our kids need us to grow with them. They really do. 
if people want to get the book, obviously where books are sold, but you got something else uh, that's kind of fun too for people. So tell them about it and a website where they can go. Well, Carrie, we count you as a dear friend and we love your listening tribe. And so Steve and I wanted to offer something special to all your listeners that if your listeners go to growingwithbook.com slash Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, that's growingwithbook.com slash Carrie, they can get a free book chapter from our new Growing With book and working with um, others at Fuller, we've developed a new Growing With Parenting quiz. It's 10 questions, super short, but any listener listener can take the quiz and figure out, is their child uh, a learner? Is their child an explorer? Is their child a focuser? And then what do they need to do as a parent to better parent their child in that stage? So it's a quick way for any parent to get better at growing with their kid. And we offer that for free at growingwithbook.com slash carry also. I'm going to go take that one as soon as it goes live. Yeah, yeah, you should. And then Tony can. You can compare results. It'll be great. Uh, I love the research you do. I love the way that you're just committed to the family, to the next generation. And uh, I love getting to work with you guys through Orange as well. That's always a lot of fun with Reggie. And uh, that's how we first connected. But thank you, guys. Yep. Congrats on the book. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks, Carrie. Oh, our pleasure and honor. You're the best. Well, you are going to want more. And the good news is we've got show notes, we've got transcripts, we've got social shareables that you can share with friends on Twitter and on social media. Head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 249. I would love to see you over there. And that's sort of your portal into my world that will get you into my blog, into my books and all the other stuff, plus the whole back catalog of this podcast as well. If you cannot spell my name, uh, you would be the only person in the world who can't do that. Kidding. You can go to leadlikeneverbefore.com and then just search Kara Powell and you will see all of the show notes for the episodes that she's been on. Everything we talked about in this episode is linked there. And don't forget to check out theunstuckgroup.com forward slash Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to get your free church health assessment. It's absolutely free. Find out where your church is at. The Unstuck Group has helped thousands of churches get unstuck and would love to have you at Rethink Leadership this year in Atlanta, May 1st through 3rd, head on over to rethinkleadership.com. Join me and an incredible cast of leaders as we do a deep dive, not only into content that's brand new, but into analyzing the issues that are really plaguing church and leadership today. Would love to have you in on that conversation, May 1st through 3rd in Atlanta, Georgia. And hey, we're back next week with a fresh episode with Gary Chapman. Yeah, I did this interview. It's funny, we work way ahead on this show. I think like a year ago almost, no, not quite. But anyway, yeah, the five love languages guy, the guru, Gary Chapman is here next week on the podcast. Here's a fascinating clip from one of my favorite interviews until it dawned on me one day that I had a very selfish attitude and I was not following the example of Christ who said about himself I did not come to be served I came to serve and I thought wow and I just said God that's the attitude I want and when I adopted that attitude and started reaching out to her and saying, how can I help you? How can I make your life easier? How can I be a better husband? She gave me answers. And what happened in her? Within three months, she started asking me those kind of questions. When you get it going this way, you're going to have the marriage you wanted 
a loving, supportive, caring marriage. It all has to do with the attitude. And that's next week on the podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for leaving ratings and reviews. And thanks for being you. You guys make this so awesome. I'm on the road a lot. Uh, Hey, I'm going to be at South by Southwest. Can you believe that? I'm going to be at South by Southwest in, well, this weekend. I'm speaking Saturday at that event. If you happen to be there, come by and say hi. I'm speaking Saturday afternoon all about the key issues, the success killers that take leaders out. It is such a privilege to be at South By. So if you're there or in Austin, shout out and say hello. That's Saturday, March 9th. Uh, And yeah, soon we'll have a speaking calendar up for where I'm going to be so we can connect with you in person this year. And uh, I was just, by the time this airs, was in Los Angeles with Brian Houston recording his TV show as well. Let's talk. So uh, we'll be... Yeah, seeing you there as well. So a lot going on. I'm super excited to be able to do this week after week with you. Thanks for making it so rewarding. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.